Hello, and welcome to the Jeff Culture Podcast with me, Mary Jane. I'm a registered nurse and the owner of MJD Legal Nurse Consulting. In the medical community, Just Culture refers to this idea that when errors occur, they should be examined closely and without judgment. It, to be honest, most errors, especially the larger ones, do not happen in a vacuum. So if we truly take a deep look at all the events leading up to an error and the factors at play, we can usually spot the weak link in the processes and hopefully prevent future errors from occurring. That's exactly what we'll be doing here in this podcast. Over the course of my career, I've reviewed hundreds of medical-related cases as a resource for attorneys across the country. I aim to use that experience, as well as my experience as a practicing registered nurse, to analyze medical-related cases, explore what went wrong, and perhaps learn what we can do in the future to save lives. Welcome to the Just Culture Podcast. So today I want to talk about standards of care. I did a social media post about this and it had a lot of great response, particularly to one section. And I really wanted to take a deep dive into that on today's episode. So just to be clear, um, a standard of care is the technical definition of it is um, a standard of care holds a person of exceptional skill or knowledge to a duty of acting as would a reasonable and prudent person possessing the same skill or knowledge under the same or similar circumstances. That's a lot, right? The whole entire definition encompasses a lot. And what I did in my post was kind of break it down into sections. So you have this first section that says, a standard of care holds a person of exceptional skill or knowledge to a duty. So exceptional skill or knowledge, that would be, you know, they've this person has had extra training on top of a layperson, right? So say a nurse, a nurse has gone to nursing school. She's then studied and passed her boards to then say that she has the knowledge to or he has the knowledge to practice as a nurse. A physician, uh, whether, whether it's a medical doctor, a doctor of osteo, osteopathy, whichever avenue they've gone through, it says that they've gone to medical school and have done an internship and residency in whatever field they've chosen. They have the expertise and have passed their medical boards to demonstrate their knowledge. A specialist, same thing. They might have had to pass their MD boards, but then also pass other testing and certification um, at, in, in whatever field it, they are. Um, nursing has the same thing. So a registered nurse with just the, you know, the RN on the end of their name, if you had a wound care case and you had a nurse who was an RN, and you wanted to compare what a wound care certified nurse would do in the same circumstance as a as a as a regular nurse would do. Um, I hate to use the word regular nurse. That feels so wrong. But in this instance, I'm just saying someone without certification. So if you were to compare what a wound ostomy nurse would be doing in any situation, it would it be fair to say that a nurse without that certification would do the same thing? Um, and have the same knowledge and skill and abilities? Um, probably not. 
right? Um, I mean, they can follow the orders, but wound nurses have extra knowledge. That's why they took the certification, they've gotten the hours, and they get to use that credential on the end of their name. So that's what we're talking about when it says someone of exceptional skill or knowledge. Um, and then we go into duty of acting as would a reasonable and prudent person. So this is kind of what the majority of folks in the field would do. Um, you can say that someone with exceptional training and experience would do one thing and someone who was maybe working on a med surge floor um, would do another thing. It's gotta be what a reasonable person would do. I mean, everybody has their own specific specialties and that kind of goes back to that certification, not certification. If, a, if it's something that a nurse without certification should have been handling, then could you say that the certified nurse or the nurse with multiple certifications and a master's degree and XYZ extra training, would they have the same approach to the same same situation? I don't know, but it's kind of the standard. Let's take um, like wound care, uh, pressure ulcer. So the standard of care and pressure ulcer is you do certain things to prevent them. You one, you screen your patients, so you know where the weak links are and where they're most at risk. And then you implement your interventions based on that. So you implement your interventions based on they're really not getting a lot of, they're in the hospital, they're sick, they're vomiting, they're not getting a lot of nutrition. Well, malnutrition leads, can put someone at increased risk for pressure injury. So we know we need to find some way to promote nutrition in this patient, get the nausea vomiting under control so we can handle that. Um, we know that Patients who aren't able to move their body, especially bed mobility, will assess the bed mobility. So if they can't turn themselves in bed independently, then it's on us to go in and every two hours at least turn them and offload pressure so that they're not getting the, the, the pressure points. There's different we can implement. We could put different beds in, you know, instead of the standard hard, firm, uncomfortable mattress if it's someone who really can't move you can go ahead and put maybe like a like a sand mattress under them or an air mattress we used to put air mattresses on patients who had really um poor it's called a brain score which is what we're scoring for pressure injury because it was just an, an ability we had in the hospital it's been shown by evidence that it works to prevent pressure injury, you still have to turn the patient, you still have to do your interventions, but it's something else that can help them and we have the ability to do it, so we're gonna do it. Now, a reasonable and prudent person in my hospital that I worked at, they would do that. A reasonable and prudent person in a hospital that did not have access to air mattresses, um, probably it might've been a reasonable and prudent person, but they didn't have the air mattresses, so how could they use the air mattresses too? So um, so that's kind of along those lines there. And it also leads into where people got the most, um, where they put the most attention. And I think it's also the most forgotten about or overlooked portion of the standards of care definition. And it's this key phrase. Possessing, so they possess the same skill or knowledge under the same or similar circumstances right there, same or similar circumstances. So looking on the outside, you can research all day on Google, you can research the databases, you can do a lot of things, 
to find out what the standard of care should be. Like, what is the evidence showing is best practice in this area? We'll take the example of the pressure injury. So if you work in a hospital that has resources, then your interventions are going to be according to your resources. If you work at a hospital who has less resources, you're not going to be able to implement the same amount of resources that the first hospital did because you just can't. Um, let me go through and give you some key examples and some things to, to kind of be looking for when you're looking to define a standard of care or when you're looking to see if somebody followed the standard of care, these are things that need to be looked at because it even says in the definition, same or similar circumstances. And not all circumstances are built the same. Unfortunately, we can have all the evidence that we're supposed to do X, Y, Z for interventions. But if we don't have what we need to implement those in interventions, then unfortunately, you can be the best nurse in the world with the most knowledge, the most up-to-date, you go to every conference, you know all of your things, and you can't do it because you don't have the ability to do it. The hospital hasn't provided that for you. For example, the hospital that I worked at, uh, Level 1 Trauma Center, we had air mattresses, we had sand beds, we had beds that would um, offload pressure all by themselves, and beds and different pillows and wedges and different um, Hoyer lifts so that we could really do a good job of offloading pressure. We had that technology available to us and it was standard, it was policy in the hospital that anyone with a Braden scale score less than XYZ, um, it would require to follow policy, you would put them on an air mattress automatically unless for some reason the hospital was out of air mattresses, in which case to cover my butt, it had happened, I would chart, you know, ordered an air mattress and never came. Now, if I worked in a rural hospital that maybe only had a certain number of air mattresses and they didn't have all the other types of beds and technology available to them because it's expensive and the hospital didn't want to, didn't spend the money to, to do it, I couldn't do... I couldn't implement the same interventions that the first hospital could, right? I couldn't put someone on a sand bed if I didn't have a sand bed in my hospital. I couldn't put every patient with a Braden scale less than 20 on an air mattress if I didn't have enough air mattresses to, to, to put everybody on one. Because let's be real, most people in the hospital have low Braden scales because they're sick. They're not able to move. Maybe they've just had surgery. They broke their hip. They're there for chemo treatment. Chemo is huge, right? Uh, wound care, um, heart failure, lots of different things. ICU, right, is, is really huge. People really aren't moving because they're unconscious in ICU. So it's it comes down to resources and it can be physical, tangible resources the hospital purchases and you have available to you. It also, resources are also human bodies and coworkers and people to help you. Um, I will take an example of working in um, an IMC, which is an intermediary care. So it's not quite the ICU. The patients are kind of awake and starting to improve, but they're not quite where they are to be 
put on a medical surgical unit. So it's kind of like a step down from the ICU, a little bit more intensive care, but not as much as the ICU. Um, and I worked in one and we had six beds on this one side of the IC and the IMC. And we didn't have a, uh, a, a CNA. It was just two nurses. And each one of those six patients were bed bound. None of them could get up out of bed. None of them could move on their own. They couldn't turn themselves on their own. So the nurse and I had to, because we lacked a resource, we lacked another person to help us. We had to work together and basically take care of all six patients on our own. We just divvied up. She charted on three, I charted on three, but we had to go through one by one and we would start at the top of the hour and start turning and repositioning and doing incontinence care, medications, interventions on one patient. And then we move together to the next one, together to the next one, together to the next one. If a call bell, somebody needed something, we had to go back, handle that, and then keep moving through our, our process. If we had had a, a CNA or two CNAs, then it would have been a lot quicker and we would have gotten through that a lot quicker. Um, it required by the time we got to the sixth patient, a lot of the times, we were either just barely at the two hour mark, which is every patient needs to be turned and offloaded pressure at two hours. We were just barely making that two hour mark or just a little bit past it when we got back to that first patient. And this was without charting. We had to chart. We had to stay late and chart because we didn't have time to chart. We just basically went from room to turn to room to turn to room to turn. And that is all we had time to do. We did not have the resources that we needed to make sure that those patients were taken care of and we could do all of our all of our work. We didn't have the resources. Now, if I was working on a similar unit from the outside, I'm looking at the records and I'm saying, oh, well, this unit has the same number of beds, the same acuity, the patients are, you know, the same level of sickness. And I am going to assume that it's the same circumstances. Well, on that same unit, if you had one or two CNAs, then you, you know, say the patient we were laid on got a pressure wound and you were trying to decide if we had followed standard of care and the standard, standard practices, standard of care. And you go back through and you're just looking at it at face value from the outside in. And you're saying, oh, well, you know, these, this hospital here six beds. They had four people in there, two nurses, two CNAs. They had all of their patients turned. They did all of the interventions on time. Nobody missed anything. Nobody got a pressure wound. And then you take our unit where there were only two nurses, two bodies total to take care of six patients. And we were running a little late sometimes, depending on, you know, if there was a call bell and someone had to toilet, you know, they didn't just kind of like when you're driving on a road trip with your kids and you're like, we're stopped at this stop sign at this stop place. You got to go pee now because I'm not stopping for another two hours. And your kids say, I don't have to pee. I don't, I'm not, I'm fine. I'm not getting out. And then you get on the road for 30 minutes and then they suddenly say, I have to pee now right away. You have to come now. And then you have to make another stop. So that's kind of the same thing as you're going through, you have your plans, two nurses, six patients, you're going through somebody didn't have to pee when you were there and you go back, you have to, you have to take them to the toilet. So it take, you know, it, it can take a little bit longer than two hours to get through all six of those people. Um, and, you know, looking from the outside in without knowing the staffing ratios of that day and comparing you, you could easily say that we didn't adhere to the standard of standard practice because 
this other unit can do it and and why couldn't we we did we just i don't know we're playing cards and we weren't and you, you don't really know until you get in there and you ask for what was the staffing ratio what was the uh, like what was that nurse who was supposed to be doing this intervention what else was on their plate what else was going on what were the true circumstances that they were dealing with because as you can see my circumstances on the unit when we were short-staffed and there were only two nurses taking care of six patients versus the unit in the perfect world where there were four people taking care of six patients you can see those are very different circumstances and we see that all the time another thing is um say a patient fall um you know anytime i've been an expert witness i've i've only reviewed like a handful of cases because i think i drive attorneys crazy because if they ask me to review a fall case i'm gonna say i want to know what the staffing ratio was on the unit i want to know what was going on on the unit at the time I want to hear from the charge nurse to find out what level of support, like where were they? Why couldn't they have helped? Um, I want to know how the how the unit, how everything was divvied up. Like, did this person have the most tricky, heaviest assignment, and everyone else didn't, and nobody was helping or chipping in? Um, just kind of what was happening and what were the circumstances is what I'm looking for, and. A lot of people just want to say, I want you to define the standard of care and tell them if they met it. Well, if I don't know the circumstances, I can't tell you if they truly met it or not. I'm always going to tell you I have a hole in, you know, in a perfect world. Maybe they didn't meet the standard of care, but we don't live in a perfect world. And if you've listened to my podcast at all, you know that healthcare is very far removed from a perfect world. So definitely looking into the circumstances is a really important key if you're a legal nurse and or a nurse asked a, an expert witness and you're listening to this to get insight you need to know what the circumstances were that that nurse was operating under um, it doesn't mean that there's nothing that a standard of care wasn't deviated but if the nurse did what she could for the best she could in the circumstances and the hospital failed to provide resources well then the hospital should be accountable but that's like that's a step that we miss an awful lot and i feel like that's where i really wanted to bring this conversation because the hospital you know the hospital's operating especially the people who are making the decisions on how much money a unit has to put for staffing, how much money we have to put for supplies, how much money we have to put for repairs. Those people are working very closely with a financial advisor who is just a um, accountant or a financial trained person. They're not medically trained, they're financially trained. So their whole mindset around setting budgets for the hospital is this is what we are projected to make and this is it, it's finite and we need to get into it and we need to make the most of what we have and to do that they often will say you are not going to buy enough um, air mattresses you can just allot it to the patients in the ICU who can't you know who can't get out of bed or the patients who already have pressure ulcers we're not going to use it to prevent pressure ulcers standard um, policy we're going to just use it after someone's gotten a pressure ulcer and which their risk is higher yes but wouldn't it be great in a perfect world to prevent any pressure ulcer from happening, especially 
since Medicare won't pay for any care for that pressure ulcer, you have to take care of that patient and heal that wound and you don't get paid for it. So you're losing money there, but nobody's looking at that. They're just looking at, we have this amount of money. We're not going to buy enough air mattresses, or you have this amount for staffing and you don't chronically understaff your unit. You chronically put less CNAs on the floor because you know, you, you need to have nurses to hand out meds. So let's skimp, let's get less CNAs and we'll make up our money there. Well, now you have a bunch of nurses who are putting their license on the line because they know that they can't give great care. Like you can't, you know, day in and day out, you come in and you're doing two nurses. Like, yes, you physically are getting it done and people are getting moved and you're doing the best you can, but you can do better and you know, you can do better and you leave the unit and you go home at night and put your head on the pillow knowing I could have done better if I had only had a couple more people and not turning people on time consistently all the time every time and not having the giving patients the time that they need it increases the risk that they're going to get skin breakdown and pressure wounds that the hospital's later going to have to eat but we're not making decisions through that lens we're making decisions on let's just save money as much as we can. And I don't know if people do enough to go through and really get the insights on how that really translates. And I, you know, I sit here because I talk about this stuff a lot and I really think like, are they really just evil and they don't care? Or are they, do they just not really have a good handle and a good touch on what's really happening. So do they fully understand the consequences of understaffing a unit? They see it as nurses and CNAs are expenses, just like a bedpan's an expense, just like housekeeping is an expense, just like um New equipment is an expense. Medications, no, not necessarily an expense, but the to um, the body, the personnel to mix medications and prepare medications are an expense. Um, toilet paper, tissues are an expense. Nurses are put in the same category as all of that, and we're really not expenses. Um, we're really we add value and we actually raise the revenue of a hospital in so many ways when we have the resources that we need to properly take care of our patients. Um, let's look at standards of care. So we have to define standards of care because there is a medical malpractice lawsuit filed against the hospital, against the provider, against the nurse, um, sometimes all of the above. and if it's because there was a wound, a pressure injury, and nobody was turning the patient on time, and the reason they were late turning the patient was because they didn't have the staffing resources to be able to turn that patient properly and on time, I think that is an excellent case for the fact that nurses do add value, nurses do save money, and nurses 
when well supported can prevent millions of dollars of settlement, right? You, I mean, you don't know what the consequences are of pressure wounds, especially in someone who's really sick. That can be devastating. I mean, you, I mean, pressure injuries themselves are graded from a pressure one injury, which is just like a red mark on the skin. It's not open. As long as you properly take care of it, it'll heal pretty quickly versus an unstageable pressure ulcer, which there's so much dead tissue and we call it slough and eschar in the wound that you can't even see what's under it. And you can even get a pressure injury so bad that the bone is sticking out. And now you have an osteomyelitis or which is an infection in the bone. And you can get these wound infections and they can spread and people can lose a lot of body fluids from it. And sometimes these pressure wounds may never heal and people can people can die from these types of things. And it could be prevented by having proper staff on a unit sometimes. And so I feel like whenever we're looking at things, we always have to look at the circumstances, always have to look at the circumstances. The same goes for physicians. So surgeons, especially they do surgery and they are actually graded um, on their outcomes and their outcomes are tracked and surgeons who have better outcomes get more money. Surgeons who have better outcomes get to work in better hospitals that pay better and they get more patients to come to them because they're like, this doctor has great ratings. I really want him to do my surgery because I'm not going to have bad things happen. So what are the bad things that could happen to um, a patient from surgery? So there are natural co consequences and natural complications from surgery. You know, you, I mean, anesthesia is always a risk. You can always, um, you, you know, you never know what's going to happen with anesthesia. So there's always a risk that you could have a bad reaction. Death is always, um, you know, there could be wound injury and each surgery specifically, there are common or not, I wouldn't say common, but there are known complications that could happen and the patients are properly educated to that and they are properly, you know, educated and they sign a consent form and you go on. But there are complications beyond that that could be prevented whether the patient knows it, whether the attorney looking at the case knows it, whether anybody knows it, there they can be they can be prevented. So in 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 most of the cases, I won't say all the time because sometimes they just can't. Um, let's take abdominal surgery. Abdominal surgery. One of the most common complications of abdominal surgery is constipation, or severe constipation, which in the medical world we call an ileus. Well, if a patient who has abdominal surgery, there are certain interventions and there's a research evidence-based pathway um, to get them a recovery pathway that gets them um, up and moving. And the whole goal is to make sure that you prevent this ileus from happening, which is a complete non-movement of the bowel. So your bowels constantly just move and that's how things get through. And when you have anesthesia and when you have opioids, and when you're not moving, your bowels get slowed down. Um, anesthesia actually paralyzes your bowels completely. Surgery to the bowel um, or any kind of abdominal surgery, which could manipulate or, you know, the physician might be moving the bowel out of the way to get to a part of the abdomen. All of that actually paralyzes and stops all movement of the bowel. So we have to do work to get it back. 
And one of the most common and best things to do that is to get a patient up and walking multiple times a day, even on the day of surgery, right? The sooner they're up and moving and the more often they're up and moving and the further they're walking and moving, the better the outcome and the decreased risk of this constipation or this ileus is going to happen. It's proven. It's not, it's scientific. People have proven it. They've done experiments with patients who don't move, patients who do move. The patients who move have less complication. Yes, you can still get an ileus if you do everything right, but you have less of your patients will get the ileus if you are doing everything right. So working in medical surgical nursing and with abdominal surgery, you know, your thing, you always want to get your patients up and walking, but if you're not able to, if you're short staffed and you have four to six patients and you're just trying to keep up with the wound care, you're trying to keep up with getting everybody to the toilet when they need to get to the toilet, making sure everybody's, you know, a lot of patients now are diabetics. So you have, nobody can eat until you go there and, and give them their insulin. So everybody's waiting for you. So you have to stop what you're doing when someone's meal comes and give them their, their check their blood sugar and give them their insulin so they can eat or they're really upset with you. Or they'll go, they, you know, run the risk of diabetic complications, which is something else. And so you have to give your medications and your wound care and your interventions and your assessments and your charting. And to get a patient up and walking using a CNA is an amazing tool because they can do that, right? As long as, you know, you go in there with them and they understand the safety protocols that need to be taken and they know how to ambulate. They've been trained how to ambulate a patient. Um, and assist them. It's, you know, it, it's the best. It gives you more hands and it gives you more ability to be able to do that. But what can take me away from making sure that all my patients get the proper amount of walking on the unit in a shift? So um, staffing, if I don't have support of, you know, a CNA is really helpful, but if they're, if I'm short a CNA, do I have enough staff? Are the, are the other nurses on the unit or other CNAs not assigned to me? Are they willing to come and help me and, and help me? You know, I mean, we get bogged down a lot in nursing by switching context. So we might be doing our med pass, but then room 403 needs some ginger ale. Room 407, you get stopped because they need to go to the bathroom, you know, and if you're not responding to these, especially bathroom requests, that increases patients' risk of falling, not getting them to the bathroom on time because people aren't going to wait. They're not going to just willingly pee their pants. So they're going to get out of bed and fall some of the time. And so, you know, you have to balance all of these risks and go where your attention needs to go. And unfortunately, taking somebody for a run-of-the-mill walk, it could be, you know, it's a very important intervention. But in the moment, with all of the things going on, trying to get through med pass and assessments and toileting and all of the, the call bells and your you missed your morning walk and then you might get them on a morning walk and then you go through and now lunches are coming and people need to go to the bathroom again because they just ate and drank and you have all these other other things going on and then whoops you missed the after lunch walk and then pretty soon you're at the end of the day you might get another walk in well you could have gotten four walks in but you only got two because you were pulled in two different or too many different directions and you just physically couldn't be where you needed to be. So staffing, bodies, physical human health is one key thing that helps us to be able to implement this intervention. 
Another thing is education. So I need to know, not necessarily, I need to know how often it's recommended to walk patients. I need to, and I need to know why. I need to know why we're doing it. And I need, I need education. I need reinforcement on that. And especially if I'm new to the unit, I never worked with abdominal surgery, I might not even have that on my radar, right? So proper training. And then also you need to have, you know, to, to prevent the ileus. I mean, there's, there's a lot more, um, you know, of things that we could do. We could get them gum and resources and, you know, have them chew gum if they're able to have them eat. Um, and just really following up and doing really close care. And if you don't have the staff available, it's really hard. It's really hard to be able to do that. Um, and so that seems like, okay, well, how does this affect the hospital's bottom line? Well, patient surgeons who have a high rate of complications after surgery have a lower rating overall. So, which affects how many surgery, how many patients are going to come to them, how many surgeries are going to, they're going to be able to do in your hospital and how much money you're going to make. Also complications, some complications like we've discussed can be, you know, we're not getting that patient up and moving them as much as we can. They're not able to eat because they have an ileus. Now they're at higher risk of pressure injury. It goes down the line that now we have a patient who has a pressure wound because they weren't getting nutrition and they weren't moving because, you know, an ileus causes abdominal pain and someone who hasn't had abdominal surgery, but you add it to abdominal surgery and it's intense pain. And they could end up getting, you know, a tube in their nose to suck out all of the, um, all of the backup. So they stop vomiting it. I mean, it, it's really, it can be really intense and their care can be intensive after it's happened. So the best thing to do is prevent it. And then you don't have all of the risk of these other complications coming on the back end of it. But hospitals aren't looking at it that way. They're looking at it through the lens of this is what you have to do. You know, you have to walk your patient four times a day. You didn't do it. Nurse Jane, um, you're innately, are you a good nurse? Can you handle this? Should you be on this unit? Let me give you a warning. Let me tell you, let me educate you. It's, it's put on the nurse as if the nurse has done something wrong. And it's really the circumstances that the nurse is in and she's doing the best she can and getting crafty with what she can. That is something that nurses are known for is that you can put us in a field and we will figure something out. You know, if we have like duct tape and some things and we can do stuff, you know, I was at a, I was in a cheer gym and a little girl broke her arm, broke her wrist. And I think I used like some VHS tapes and some shoelaces and the mom didn't want to call um, an ambulance and she had circulation. So VHS tapes, some shoelaces, I got her splinted and she was off to the hospital. Um, you know, we can do a lot with very little, we really can. And that is one of our superpowers, but it's also our greatest failure because we're expected to, it's an expectation now that nurses can continue to do what they should be doing with less, with less tangible, purchasable um, resources. Like I mentioned the beds and you know, proper wound care resources. We see that a lot. You know, you don't have the wound care supplies that you actually need to properly heal a wound. 
um, you don't have the proper thickener to thicken the liquid. So, you know, how are you going to properly hydrate your patient if they can't drink thin liquids? Uh, it's, you know, it's, we can get creative, but we can only get so creative. And then when you start taking away our human resources, or if we're working in a unit where people just don't help you, and they're not in a unit where teamwork is at play, and they care and they want to help one another, you know, if I'm, if I was ever on a unit, and I saw that, you know, nurse MJ has a code, and, and being the primary nurse, they have to be in that code until the code is over. Well, nurse MJ has five other patients who is rounding on those patients. Do they have any medications that are due? How can I help nurse MJ? Because when nurse MJ in an hour or two is out of that code, she's going to be an hour or two behind and medications and interventions are going to be missed. And so I'm all set on my patients, the code teams here. I don't need to be assisting with the code. What can I do? I'm going to go and see which patients nurse MJ has. I'm going to go round on them and make sure everybody's safe and make sure that they're all set. And I'm gonna look in to see if they have any timed antibiotics or time, other medications. Did their meal tray come? Do they need insulin? Well, they don't need to wait two hours for lunch when Nurse MJ's in a code. I can go ahead and do their blood sugar and I can give them their insulin and give them their meal. You don't see that on every unit. It's, oh, well, I'm all set. Well, it sucks to be Nurse MJ. Look at her. She's stuck in that code. Look at her being all behind. Thank God that's not me. That was me last week, but not me this time. I'm going to go home early tonight, and MJ's going to be here for two hours because she's going to be, she hasn't done any charting because she's now chasing her tail to get caught back up because she's behind. Um, You know, there's a lot of things. The moral of the story here is that there's a no two environments are the same. No two hospitals are the same. The amount of resources that the nurses are working with matter in how well they can implement the proper interventions and obtain and, you know, stay true to the standards of care. So, you know, if when a nurse is looking and they say, I need to see the hospital policies, I need to see the staffing ratios. I need to find out what else was going on the unit at the time of this patient fall. You really, you really need to honor that and you really need to look at that because what you'll uncover is a lot of the unseen things that I've talked about in this episode. And that's a lot of nurses' stories. And there are some hospitals that are recognizing this as an issue, this as a revenue producing ish and revenue saving issue. And there are the, unfortunately, the majority of hospitals who are not, they're seeing more staffing as an expense rather than an asset to the hospital. They're seeing medical malpractice claims as, you know, they have a budget for it. They can just send it off on their budget. They've already accounted for X amount of millions of dollars to go towards any one thing happening. So it's low risk for them. They can just settle the claim if they think that they are going to lose, right? And, but you know who loses at the end of the day? And I'll leave you with this. The person who loses at the end of the day is number one and most important is the patient who unfortunately got suboptimal care because of suboptimal resources. And the second person who loses is the 
nurse, doctor, therapist, provider of any kind taking care and trying to do their best by that patient to make sure that that patient gets the best care that they deserve and that they know that they're capable of giving, they know that they're supposed to be giving, and they know that they they should and want to give the best care. But if they can't because of resources, you know, that is an inner conflict. And it goes against a lot of our, you know, inner internal values and our whole entire compassionate care for people, do no harm, um, system that we have inside and it causes a lot of inner tor- turmoil. You know, I mean, there were nights when I couldn't even go to sleep because I was up thinking about all the things I could have done better. And it came down to, you know, I wouldn't have been late turning that patient if I had had my own CNA versus, you know, two nurses taking care of sick, really sick patients who are, you know, on the verge of going back to the ICU coding. Um, and it, you know, if you don't get right into a room with someone when their alarm goes off, they cause they're not breathing. Um, you know, I mean, it's really hard. Um, and you know, you do the best you can, but if your best, the best you can give isn't enough, there's always this innate feeling that you are not enough because we're told we're not enough. If somebody ever audited and said you were late turning this patient, they would never have looked at the circumstances to be like, oh gosh, you know, if we just had some staff, nobody would have been late. They were doing the best they could. Um, they just would say that, you know, MJ, you should have been turning that patient and that's on you. They didn't care that, you know, the patient in 422 kept taking off their breathing machine or their, their breathing mask. And every time they did, their oxygen went in the toilet because they stopped breathing and I had to rush in or, or that patient would die, you know, and nobody really... Nobody looks at those circumstances. They just look at you, you know, you should have done this in an isolated incident. And I really encourage you to look beyond that. And if you're a nurse listening and you, I know you've been in these situations and, or maybe you're a new nurse and I want you to understand this isn't your fault. And if you are feeling like you don't have the resources that you need, bring it to your manager you know, I mean, your director of nursing on your unit, your manager, your clinical manager, they should be able to advocate higher up the chain for you for resources. Um, They should be willing to go to the mat for you instead of making you feel like you're just not good enough because you can't do the same. You can't give good care with the small amount of resources that they're giving you. Um, Advocate for yourself, advocate for your patients, and yeah, check the circumstances before you say you've defined the standard of care. And with that, I'm going to leave you for the week. Um, If you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends, Um, share it with your attorney friends, share it with your nursing friends of all kinds. Um, And until next week, we'll see you later.